Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. I'm welcoming myself back as well since I didn't record an episode last week. I was sick. I was hacking. Um, that wouldn't have been fun for you. Definitely would not have been fun for me. Um, it would have been a great frustration. So I just decided, you know what? Forget it. I'll come back. We'll record something uh, this next week. And here we are. So we had been talking about worship and some pitfalls of worship. We had a Thanksgiving break. Then I had an opportunity to record an episode with my great friends Josh and Autumn Miller. And now we're going to turn our attention back to the topic that we were rolling with, which was uh, corporate worship. Like, what is worship and defining worship? So I would invite you to go back and check out those episodes. Uh, Like, I think it starts around episode 38, and you can catch up with that. Uh, Today, what I want to look at is a very specific and important point regarding the nature of worship, especially for Western Christians. Okay, so the context of the discussion today is going to be placed primarily in a corporate worship setting. We're not talking about your daily devotions or your family devotions or whatever else, but we're talking about corporate worship when you go to your local assembly, when you go to church, and you're looking to worship with the saints. And why is that important? It's important because when Christians think about worship, especially Western Christians, we think about it in the context of what do we do when we gather together? And people in Christianity, in churches, oftentimes judge the goodness or the badness of worship based on what they experience in your corporate worship service. Now, that's not right, necessarily, but that's what oftentimes happens. It is all the external things that people see and experience that causes them to walk away saying, wow, I felt like I really worshiped today, or boy, that place, that did not induce worship for me. And, um, you know, boy, it's hard to argue with people's experience. I'll just throw that out there. It is hard to argue with people's experience. I, I know we have spent a lot of time at our church trying to develop a worship service that is Christ-centered, Christ-honoring, heavy on scripture, uh, directing our focus to God. But I know that people have come to our church and they walk out of there and they're like, boy, I just didn't, didn't do anything for me. And I'm like, why not? <laughs> you can't argue with their subjective experience. It's just hard to do that. And so how do you change somebody's subjective experience? Well, you start by changing their theology. Start by building up a better and more pure foundation of what is what is it that you expect when you go to a worship service? 
And so that'll take us to really the first point in what I want to share with you today is the underlying presuppositions that believers have when they approach worship. Underlying presuppositions. So when you walk into a church, you are expecting something. Whether you think that you are or aren't, you are oftentimes expecting something. So a presupposition, just to remind us, is a fact that you assume to be true without having confirmed whether it is indeed true or false. So the underlying presupposition of many Western Christians and Western churchgoers is that they think the feeling that is produced within their heart during the worship service is what indicates whether their worship of God is successful or not. Let me state that again. Most Christians believe that the feeling that is produced within their heart during the worship service is what determines the success or the failure of their worship. Now, that's category one. Those Christians, that would, I think, be most Western Christians, have that underlying presupposition that there needs to be a great feeling that is produced in order for worship to be successful. They assume that to be true, whether they have confirmed it's true or not. Now, there's a second category of believers, I think more in the minority, but a second category of believers do this. These believers, these Christians, are wary of their feelings. They try to eliminate all emotional response or stimulation out of their worship service because they are afraid that their hearts will deceive them and they won't be pleasing to God. So this is a really a reaction to what I would consider the excesses of the charismatic slash Pentecostal movement. Okay, The reaction to hey, we're trying to produce a great feeling, and if you don't walk away feeling great, then it was unsuccessful. The reaction to that is to be wary of emotions, to be distrustful of emotions, and to say that, you know what? We shouldn't have emotion in our worship service. Now, you can see, I think, if you were to just take these perspectives from a bird's eye view, that neither of them accurately reflect the Bible's own interpretation and explanation of feelings in worship. You see, if you take, just read the Psalms. Spend time reading the Psalms. You'll see high highs and low lows. And the common thread between the high highs of the Psalms and the low lows of the Psalms, the common thread is that God the Father and His character and His attributes, His divine nature, His divine work, that always is the central focus. So if you're low, 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 and you're feeling horrible, looking at and considering our great God and what He has done will oftentimes bring you back up and help you have a right frame of mind. On the other hand, if you're in a celebratory mood and things are going great, 
Why is that? Well, because we have a great God who has given us great blessings and all the blessings and praise that we enjoy ought to be given back to God. All the glory, all the credit ought to be given to him. So we have these two underlying presuppositions. Some Christians think that great feelings make up great worship, and other Christians distrust feelings, thinking that um, their worship will be more successful if they are devoid of feelings. You know what? Both of these presuppositions have something in common. They teach us something about the nature and the composition of man. Now, churches and Christians in the first category think that man is driven primarily by his feelings and his instincts, and that these processes inform the majority of his decision-making, that man is really a sum and his actions are the result of his emotions. Category two churches believe that man is a rational being and that feelings can interpret or feelings can interrupt, excuse me, and interfere with solid decision-making. And as I just mentioned about the Psalms, both aspects are true about people, okay? Both aspects are true. We do have feelings. We can't deny that. But we do have rationality. And our rationality must be based on truth. Our feelings can sometimes, and to, some, to a large degree, be based upon circumstance and personality. But we must have truth, have a knowledge of truth, to guide and direct those feelings so that they honor God. So, how do we take this presupposition, this pointing out of truths that we assume to be true, how do we take that and change it so that we have a proper perception of mankind and of what God-honoring corporate worship ought to look like? Let's take a little bit of a history lesson, a detour through history as it will, to help us come up with a correct theological understanding of the composition of man. Some Bible scholars have proposed that there is a tripartite or a trichotomous view of man, that man consists of soul, body, and spirit. I think this is pretty well accepted in our culture. Now, others propose that there is a dichotomous or a dualistic view of man, that man really only has a spiritual side and a physical side. And there are various scholars throughout history who have made cases for and against these things. But really what I think is important to point out is that man, when he examines himself, often tries to split apart the different aspects of personhood. So man tries to split apart the soul and the body and the spirit or the spirit in the body. Man tries to split apart the emotions from the mind. Man tries to divvy things up into neat little categories. That's not how God looks at man, though. God doesn't look at man as a grouping of neat little categories. God views man holistically. Okay, It's a reflection of how God views himself. 
You know, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image. Therefore, in the male and female, he made them. In the image of God, God made man. So does God view himself as a bunch of parts and pieces that are related, but not intricately connected together? No, God doesn't view himself that way. God views himself as a God of perfect mercy and grace. God also views himself as a God of perfect justice and wrath. There's no difference there. There's no, uh, well, I'm going to do this this time and I'm going to do that this other time. No, God is all of himself at all times. In the same way, man is always man. We like to create cute little cliche sayings like, follow your heart, not your head. Well, that's just dumb because your heart and your head don't actually do things independently of one another. You can use that saying to um, maybe shirk your responsibility or to try to get out of doing something or because it makes you feel free or whatever. But ultimately, your mind has an idea of what it wants to do. And if you're going to say, well, I'm going to follow my feelings. This feels right. This feels good. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Um, That doesn't necessarily make it right, nor does it mean that your brain is disengaged. The Bible makes no distinction between the physical and the spiritual nature of man. Okay, God views man holistically. You have the members of your body, that is your flesh. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 12. You have the flesh, but you also have the spirit, the spirit that dwells within you. Now, man, if you're a Christian, man's spirit, spiritual part, Uh, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so you have the Holy Spirit helping you, filling you, you should have the Holy Spirit filling you, to make wise decisions. God-honoring decisions. Decisions based on His Word. But the natural man, so the unbelieving man, has a spiritual side too, but he is not controlled by the Spirit of God. He is controlled by his own lusts, his own desires. Paul writes, in Ephesians chapter 2, that the natural man is enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. So there's no difference, there's no distinction that's made between the physical and the spiritual parts of man when it comes to examining a man's actions. Okay? When Jesus commanded, or when Jesus answered the Pharisees regarding what was the greatest commandment of the law. He quoted, you know, Genesis, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. Any distinction there? No. All of you, all the parts of you have to love all of God. And really, that's a total dedication and a total determination to follow God no matter what. Whether you feel like it today or don't feel like it today, you will yourself to do what is correct. Now, I think that the fallacy that we often encounter when we adopt a view of man that looks at his individual parts and their function in worship 
is that we tend to overemphasize one part at the expense of other parts. Now it is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult, to separate the actions of the soul and spirit from the mind. Note Matthew chapter 15 verses 18 through 20. Jesus says that a man is not defiled because of what he puts into his mouth, but a man is defiled because of all the things that proceed out of his mouth. For everything that comes out of a person's mouth reflects their heart. So he talks about slanders and murders and evil things and lies and all kinds of other sins. Jesus says all of those things proceed out of a man from the heart. So if you want to know what you really worship, what do you talk about? What subjects are on your lips most often? Where does your mind go when you have free time? All right, so there is a great and important connection between what you speak with your physical mouth, your physical body, or what you do with your physical body, and the desires of your heart. They are not able to be separated. Oh, you can hide them. Sure, you can hide them for a little while, but you can't separate them from one another and just act like, well, everything that I do in my physical body is not sin. What only matters is what I do with my spiritual body. No, you can't do that. The Bible doesn't have any concept or any notion of that being a true way of being. In fact, that's the very heresy called Gnosticism that the Apostle John was confronting when he wrote his first epistle, the epistle of 1 John. There were men who were asserting that you could live in the physical body any way you wanted to as long as in your heart you worshipped God and had a love and affection and devotion for God. And John just says, no, 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 no. That's not possible because what you do with your physical body is a reflection of the inward reality of your life. There's no way to make that distinction. They are the same. They are 100% the same. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the first ungodly thought you have means that you're an unsaved person. All right, that's not what we're trying to say. But what we are saying is that if you're a Christian and your thoughts in general don't tend to trend toward Jesus Christ and seek to honor Jesus Christ, then your actions probably aren't going to do that then you should probably really question whether you're in the faith or not. That's John's whole point. All right, that's John's whole point. Now, if you're talking, let's just say you're talking about somebody who's unsaved. Well, the heart of an unsaved person is deceitful and wicked. And people who are unsaved are not morally good nor can they discern their true motivations without the Word of God. So the question is, if you're a church and you're designing a corporate worship service to be quote-unquote seeker-sensitive, 
And you know this reality about man, that man is a holistic being, that his heart is connected to his mind, is connected to his body, and there's no separating those things out. How can you design a worship service to be quote-unquote seeker-sensitive when you know that an unbeliever can't worship in the way that you can worship? Oh, he worships. Trust me, he worships all kinds of things, but they're false gods. He can't worship what you worship. He can't know what you know. I think it's impossible, and it's a misnomer to be seeker-sensitive in designing a corporate worship service. And think about the elements of a seeker-sensitive worship service. Oftentimes, there are a lot of appeals to the emotional part of the person, the emotional part of man, trying to draw them in, make them feel at home, make them feel like they belong. Are you doing them a favor or a, a disservice? I would say it's a great disservice because you're not being honest with them about what their true need is. All right, you're not being honest with them about their true need. So if you take this perspective that you can separate out the parts of man, you know, mind, soul, spirit, body. If you separate all these things out, then you're going to end up designing a worship service that is incomplete. In fact, it might be downright wrong because you're, you're not looking at man the way God is looking at man. So how does God look at man? Well, God looks at man, as we've already mentioned, holistically. Both the heart and mind, when you encounter them in Scripture, refer to the individual as a whole. There is no attempt to separate the psychology of a man from the physiology of a man. All right? That separation comes from our Western society and our Western way of thinking. But that's not present in the biblical text. Next week, I want to give you a thorough explanation from the scriptures of what the scriptures say about the heart and the mind. And then we want to conclude with an application towards corporate worship. But to sum up what we've talked about today, this is the important point that oftentimes we approach corporate worship trying to get something out of it that we think is important. We have determined that something is important, not going to the Word of God and saying, what does God say is important? And that's where we really need to stop and examine what we're hoping to accomplish when we come together as a corporate body to worship Jesus Christ. And the whole point of talking about our expectations of corporate worship and how we think about man is that many pastors and church leaders 
design worship services based upon their understanding and their belief about man's essential nature and character. So it's important to understand what are the views? What does the Bible say? And that's what we're going to look at next week. We will look at what is the heart from the scripture, what is the mind, and what is the conclusion that scripture comes to when it talks about these things. Thanks for listening. I appreciate all the feedback and comments that I've received. Thank you for sharing this podcast. I pray that it's a great blessing to you and that as we look at these issues from the Word of God together, you would be challenged to purify yourself as you worship God, not only in your private life, but in your local church as well. God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas.